Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. Yeah, and welcome back for episode 22. Oh, we should have had like Taylor Swift's like 22 playing. But I don't think we can <laughs> do that. You. <laughs> okay, yeah, so 22, 22. Um, so yeah, before we get into episode 22, we have a couple updates for you all. One, if you don't follow us on Insta, then this might be your first time hearing, but it has officially been one year since we started the podcast as of this episode Happy coming birthday. out. Happy first birthday podcast. Um, it's been a wild and fun year and we are super thankful to all of our listeners and our supporters throughout this entire year. The feedback and the love and even the criticism that we have received has helped us change about the podcast for years to come. So yeah. Happy first birthday of the podcast. They grow up so fast. Oh my God. We're podcast moms. Yeah. And then also more exciting news is we made a Twitter. So you can follow us on Twitter at FSTS underscore podcast, or you can just search from Scars to Scrubs in Twitter and it'll pop up. Um, And we'll be posting episode related content, but also content related to feminism, women's health and medical history. I think those are all of our updates. So now we can get back to our regularly scheduled programming. The episode today is on the rest cure, which was a treatment created by Dr. Silas Weir Mitchell in the 1860s. And for this rest cure, we'll be talking about like why it was created and for whom, why it is significant to women's health and more. But before we get into all of that, Alicia, tell me all the things that you know. Yeah. So I am familiar with the rest cure because in college, I took a class on mental health in the 1800s and it was like a feminist class. So we looked at that from a feminist perspective. Uh, It was the class that I took Mm -hmm. with Dr. Diana Lewis, who was our guest on episode four. So you Mm -hmm. should listen to that episode if you haven't already. But In that class, we learned about the rest cure, which from what I can remember is essentially a cure for that was diagnosed or a cure that was prescribed to women for basically any ailment. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting was that what I specifically remember is that it was specifically for hysteria. Um, mm-hmm. for women experiencing like mental health issues. And the idea was that if women just went home, rested, did nothing, slept all day, that they would get better because women were frail and fragile and overworking them or expecting anything of them would be too much. But mm-hmm. it is important to point out that it was specifically white women that this was prescribed for and definitely not women of color. They weren't even seeing physicians for like for hysteria at the time. So we also had to watch this movie called The Yellow Wallpaper. Would not recommend that movie. <laughs> it was boring. But I will oh, say no. the woman in it, who was the main character, had some kind of psychotic break at the end after enduring the rest cure for basically oh. the entire movie. So if you want to see that, then maybe it's worth it. 
to watch. Okay. Good to know. And yeah, everything you said, completely true. One thing they definitely pointed out a lot was that the women receiving the rescue had to be in an affluent position because mm-hmm. you had to literally like, I'll talk about like what you had to do, but you weren't able to go through this treatment if you had to go to work every day or if you had to like do this or that and be places. So it was women who were able to be taken out of their like life and society to go do this cure that were able to do it. And those were people who were affluent and like white women who didn't have to work as much and like do a lot of things that minority women did at the time. Because we are talking about the 1800s today. Mm-hmm. Our favorite, our favorite era. So progressive, really forward thinking. Honestly, we've just downgraded since then. Yeah, basically. All right. And then I guess with that, let's get into it. On that <laughs> positive note, let's do it. So I take phosphates or phosphites, whatever it is, and tonics and journeys and air and exercise. And I'm absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while in spite of them, but it does exhaust me a good deal having to be so sly about it or else meet with heavy opposition. I sometimes fancy that in my condition, if I had less opposition and more society and stimulus, but John says the very worst thing I can do is to think about my condition. And I confess it always makes me feel bad. So I will let it alone and talk about the house. So that was a section from the yellow wallpaper, the very (laughs) movie Alicia doesn't like. (laughs) It is not good. Did you hear that? That was, that's upsetting. I know. And that the yellow wallpaper is actually a short story written by Charlotte Perkins Stetson in 1892. And Charlotte Like you said, she was a patient of the rest cure that she received from Dr. Mitchell. And in the essay, she writes about her time there and how she literally went crazy staring at the wallpaper in her room. Like she started imagining things. Yeah. She started imagining that there was like another person in the wallpaper or the wallpaper was alive or something. Like it's like difficult to read. I tried reading the short story, but it's like written in 1800s English and I'm not an English major, so I don't know how to read <laughs> complicated things, but it, yeah, she basically goes crazy. But what I thought was interesting about that excerpt is she's talking like, she's like starting the rest cure and they're like, okay, you can't do anything. You can't think you can't read. And she's like, I feel like those things would help me right now, but I'm just gonna listen to the doctor. Cause he's the one that's telling me to not do those things. So it must right. be right for me to do that. So I think it's a good segue into what this is going to look like today. But what even is the rest cure? So I just want you to imagine right now, just like close your eyes wherever you are. If you're driving, don't close your eyes, but otherwise close your eyes. (laughs) And I want you to imagine those times when you're trying to fall asleep and you just like, can't, no matter what you do, you just cannot fall asleep. No matter what meditation music you listen to or how many sheep you count or what positions you try to sleep in, like nothing's really working. So at your last resort is like, okay, I'm just going to lay here as still as possible. And maybe my body will think that I'm sleeping and I will eventually just fall asleep. 
But in that time that you're like waiting for your body to figure out if like you're sleeping, you're not, you're like, oh my God, all I want to do right now is move. Like I just want to wiggle around some more so bad, but I need to stay still so that I can fall asleep. Imagine that moment where you're trying to stay really still and not wiggle around, but you're having to do that for six weeks straight, like six literal weeks straight, just laying there still as possible. No movement (laughs) at all. No muscle use, no wiggle, no turning, no thrashing around laying there. That is essentially what the rest cure is. I've never imagined it like that. That is actually awful. Isn't that painful? It literally like irks my that muscles and my- That so upsetting. I'm just uncomfortable thinking about it because I do that all the time. Like I'll just like, if I'm tired, but not tired enough to fall asleep, I'm like, I'm just gonna lay here until I eventually fall asleep. That literally happened to me last night. I couldn't sleep for like two hours and I just <laughs> laid there and I was like, please, sweet Lord, <laughs> just come take me. So yeah, that's basically the rest cure is, but you're probably like, how would that cure someone? Like what the heck's even going on? According to Dr. Mitchell, he thought it would cure psychological ailments, specifically diseases like hysteria, which Alicia mentioned, Mm -hmm. and we've mentioned in the past a lot, which was a disease that was thought to have to do only with women and a lot of like anxiety and depression, but also they would use the rest cure to treat neurasthenia, I think is how you say it. Um, mm-hmm. so Alicia, do you know what neurasthenia is? Um, uh, no, I've never heard of that. It is a psychological disorder that was created in the Victorian era, specifically for rural farmers in America and farmer wives that described them as being really bored, being really depressed, being anemic, having insomnia, like all mm-hmm. these various symptoms. And they would put it in this category of the neurasthenia. But then as like the 1800s became the industrial era and urban settings became like stronger and more popular, more and more people were going to work. This term was soon moved away from rural settings and went into urban settings where it would explain depression and anxiety and just like symptoms of people who were honestly overworked and people who like haven't worked this hard in this long before. So half of a medical school, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Any (laughs) student anywhere. Got Mm -hmm. it. Yep. So that's what was happening. But specifically for women, it wasn't the increased workload that was contributing to their mental health and their supposed neurasthenia diagnosis. It was more like the atmosphere of Victorian society that was contributing to mental health decline in women. So in men, it was because they were going to work so much, but women, it was different. Because in women, like we know about the Victorian age, were constantly, constantly told that they were inferior to men. They were lesser than men. They were not as smart as men. And then men went out into the workforce and they had to stay at home and they had to take care of the kids and they had to do all the household work and they were just covered in responsibilities. So it was actually theorized that when people look back at that time, they're like, okay, what was going on with mental health then? It is said that women were feeling this like helplessness feeling basically Mm. due to their lack of social power and the domestic roles that they were put in. So they're feeling very helpless. They had to go through like very intense self-sacrifice to spend so much time caring for families and house work. They didn't have any time for themselves, which is honestly still true. But like those feelings were so intense that it really pushed many women, like I said, still true today to having mental illnesses. 
Mm-hmm. So women at this time though, is like men going out, there's not men in the home as much anymore. They're having increased stress and pressure. So women are presenting to the doctor more with mental illnesses, resulting in a much different diagnosis than maybe what doctors would say today if you came in with the mental illness, or maybe honestly the same as well, you'll see. But a woman presenting to the doctor, feeling anxious, feeling depressed, feeling helpless, was suspected to be having those symptoms due to five different reasons. Okay. Alicia, what do you think any of these five reasons could be? What? I did not <laughs> think this was going to be a Q&A portion. I, oh. I know you got ready to like write it down. I did. Um, can I have a hint? I'm confused. Some of them make sense and some of them don't make sense. But okay, that was a bad <laughs> hint. So <laughs> like, can you repeat the question? <laughs> what? would be a couple reasons that doctors thought that women were presenting with like nervous disorders. Like what could be making them have anxiety, depression, like mental illness disorders specifically that would affect their nervous system. They haven't slept enough. Maybe. That was just a nice way of you to say <laughs> fatigue. Is that I don't it? think that's one. No, but that is a symptom for sure. But not a, not a cause, not like a reason. One is sudden shock. What the heck? Okay. Um, maybe yeah. like after childbirth issues. They're always worried about know. the kids and the childbirthing. That's like That's all true. women are good for. So I'm like, maybe. That's true. So kind of close, but I'll just give it to you. Is normal reproductive physiology. Ah, uh, just normal. Just normal. Yep, just normal. So the five things that could cause a woman to present with a nervous disorder are sudden shock. Severe domestic strain, acute illness, chronic nutrition disturbances, and just their normal reproductive tract. Oh. And you're and you're like looking at this list, and you're probably like, okay, sudden shock, severe domestic strain makes sense. I would also be stressed if I was going through sudden shock and severe domestic strain. Acute illness, yes, probably would make me anxious as well. Chronic nutrition disturbances, I mean. Yeah, nutrition for sure can affect your health. It could definitely affect like how clearly you're thinking if you're malnourished, but like the normal reproductive tract, like you're just normal physiology is causing you to have mental illness, but only in women, only in women. Right. So what, what the heck is going on here? They believed that your reproductive organs and your sexuality and just you being a woman played a role in female specific nervous system disorders. Which makes no sense. They literally thought like your uterus and your ovaries could be the cause of you having anxiety or mental illness. But at the same time, women were starting to take on more work. You know, they're working more in the home. Some women are working outside the home and trying out new things and trying jobs, whatever. And so another theory about women's reproductive system was that they're spending too much energy doing things that are taking their energy away from their uterus because women are doing things now like thinking and they're like (laughs) learning and going to school and getting jobs and like that's unacceptable yeah because this rescue is approaching like the late 1800s too and starting a little bit into the early 1900s towards the end so women are you know starting to enter the profession different professions um So yeah, so the energy is being taken away from the uterus to unimportant things like learning, 
and thinking. So there's a lot happening here because women are either sick because they're overwhelmed and because their normal physiology is making them sick or because their energy is suddenly diverted away from the uterus and because also their nutritional balance is off. Like what? But I don't know. Dr. Mitchell saw all these things and he was like, I have a fantastic idea. I know exactly how to fix these women. What if we just make them do literally nothing at all? <laughs> nothing. We'll just take away like every single potential factor we could think of that's causing them to have mental illness. I'm just going to take it away. The less strain on the nervous system, the better. And that is literally what they were prescribed. <laughs> Good. Great. So when a woman received a rest cure, she had to give all of her power and like all of her autonomy over to the physician. So she had to completely submit to the male authority because most physicians at the time were male. Yep. And promise to resist to nothing and do nothing. (gasps) Oh my God. Yep. So already extremely problematic. (laughs) So problematic. Oh no, I'm nervous. Mm -hmm. And then once the woman submits, she has to lay down in a bed for six, 12 weeks. Wait, what does she eat? Oh, you'll learn. Oh, just oh, wait. So no. she's just laying there, right? Like we talked, you're, you're laying there trying to fall asleep and you can't move. That is what this woman is doing right now. Oh. She's not allowed to sit up. She's not allowed to roll to her side without What? Help. Yeah, you literally you have can't to roll lay. to her side. No, you have to lay. That's what I'm saying. You can't move. You have to lay on your back. You can't do anything. Oh my God. Yes. So that you're not allowed to sit up or roll. Literally to your side, which is like the only way I sleep. So I can't even imagine how <laughs> you're literally a log. You're a little log. The nurse would have to turn you over, or the doctor had to give you like verbal permission to be able to do something. Oh Otherwise, God. you weren't allowed to do anything. I hate that. You also aren't allowed to write, you're not allowed to read. Sometimes you weren't even allowed to speak. Just Great. laying there mute paralyzed. You cannot move your arms or legs. Can't do literally anything. So instead a nurse sits with you all day and the nurse gives you a daily sponge bath. They read a book for a couple hours to you. And they also give you vaginal douches and rectal enemas. No. (laughs) What even it started out? I was like, okay, okay. You know, the nurse is going to sit with you. She's going to read like little women and you're going to be like, ah, Joe, ah, Beth, ah, (laughs) like Florence. And then it's like, and then she gives you a rectal enema. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And you have, of course, no say in it because you already gave all your autonomy to the doctor and said that you would listen to everything. So imagine how traumatizing that is. Like that's someone's cleaning your privates all the time and you have no control. And based on some things we already talked about, why do you think they did this, Alicia? Because they thought that the uterus and reproductive organs were being like overworked or not not worked enough they needed more like blood flow to them so yeah they thought their rectal enemas would increase the blood flow to the uterus and vaginal douching and vaginal douching which is actively bad for you yeah so basically they were like okay 
this issue, this mental disorder has something to do with reproductive. So we're just going to make sure she's clean down there, basically, to make sure it's not interacting with her. Yeah. So just off. So off. So, okay. um, I wonder what the rates of, I mean, you wouldn't have no way of knowing this, but I wonder what the rates of like yeast infections were at the time. If you're consistently, you know, changing the pH of the vagina. Anyway, that's just a thought. Yeah. In between washing duties, the nurses would also work to prevent muscle atrophy for the patients in bed. Good. Which is good. Yep. They would practice passive exercises of the limbs, which is very common even today in bedridden patients. Right. So solid move on their part. Good, good, good job there. Got to keep those muscles active. You did one right thing. Good job. You did the good thing. Kind of. So moving the moving the muscles around, like passive movements, nurse moving the arms and legs, great. Makes sense. But they also practiced electric shock. Electric shock. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, good, good. Electric yep. shock. This is going great. Yep. So they would shock the muscles to increase neural activity of them and okay. make sure they were working, which like, ow, ow, so many owls. So on top of the shock, which definitely hurt, they also would massage the body, which you're like, oh my God, it sounds so nice. Like, I want to massage. No. This is how the massage was described in this thing. It says the whole belly is shaken by rapid vibratory motion of the hands. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, what is happening? It sounds so uncomfortable. That sounds terrible. Um, What a funny way to describe it. Yeah, so um, how are we feeling so far about the rest cure? Not amazing. Not, Not amazing. Yeah, not amazing is a good way to put it. Um, well, we are, we're not done. So after, you know, they're washing, they're reading, they're vaginal douching, they're massaging, all those things. They also had to eat, like you asked. And they weren't allowed to feed themselves because that would involve lifting up your hand, which wasn't allowed. Right. Right. So nurse would feed you. And there was a very strict food schedule, like same schedule every single day, eat the same things every single day. And this is what they are fed. This is a quote from describing breast care. So they are fed by nurses a light breakfast and then a mutton chop at midday dinner, bread and butter thrice a day, and then three to four pints of milk, which are given at and after meals. Three and to then, four pints of milk. That's yeah. a lot of no, lactose. This, this is each time. It's an absurd amount of milk a day. That's insane. Yeah. And then they also had to receive one pound of beef in the form of raw soup. What? Yes. What? Yes. I'll explain how they made it. Okay. (laughs) You went from what to wait, wait, what's happening? (laughs) I'm confused about how the soup is raw. If it's soup, is it just water and meat? Okay. This is what they did. They would chop up one pound of raw beef. Then they would place it into a bottle with one pint of water and five drops of strong acid. And then they would just like soak into it and become (gasps) soup. Excuse me? Yeah. That's what they ate every single day. That's a one, an absurd amount of food. Absurd. That's a lot of food for someone who's actually doing no work. 
like who's not even moving that mm-hmm. is too much of a calorie count that is yeah. an excessive what are the macros on this meal someone let her know <laughs> that she's overeating i mean she didn't have a choice if she refused to eat the food it was either force fed through her nose what <laughs> or through her rectum what yeah what is this actually sounds like torture i don't even understand the point of the nose or the rectum like you can't absorb your nutrients that way can you no you can't okay yeah and if they this happens sometimes not always but sometimes if they didn't obey still they'd be whipped until they were obedient what the the heck okay so now it's actually torture Yep. And then on top of all that, they are drinking obscene amounts of milk, as we said, which made them very, very sleepy, which like contributed to them submitting to this lifestyle even more because they were like already doing nothing, which is going to make you probably sleepy all the time anyway. And then you're going to be drinking a ton of milk, which makes you tired. So then you're going to be even more tired. So now you're just like in this foggy, like low state. And then it was considered successful by the end of the treatment if you gained at least 20 pounds that makes a lot of sense yeah that with the macros and the and the diet yeah 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 yep so um dr mitchell believed that the more weight a patient gains the healthier that patient would be um because he saw like a correlation between weight and healthier patients Cause he, and he thought that like increased weight gain would improve the health of your blood, which you're probably like, what is like, that's like the opposite today. Like you gain more weight, your blood's going to come back as like more unhealthy. But for him, his patients often came in like really anxious, depressed females who were often really skinny and anemic. So his treatment yeah. like changed that. And he was like, oh, I'm seeing better results in these like women. So obviously right. them gaining weight is doing good for them which is so different. I mean, today is very different just based on like food that's produced and like what weight means now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I compared understand to the, past, the anemia but, and like that stuff kind of makes sense, but the approach is so yeah. barbaric, mm-hmm. but okay. And then once a woman has gone through all that and she's like starting to get towards the end of her treatment, she is subject to moral, she's subject to moral re-education where she is taught to control her emotion. And this part's really interesting because what else is happening in the world while these women are receiving the rest cure? It's late 1800s, you said? Yep. First wave feminism? Yes. First wave Me. feminism is happening. And oh, so they women- hated that, I'm sure. Oh, no. Yeah. So women are starting to like reconsider their role in society. They're trying to think about what it means to be masculine versus feminine and becoming like more sexual beings. And like you said, like people did not like this. They were like, mm, we, no, women need to go back to how they were before. We don't like this whole new independence thing. Feminism, what is this? No. So part of the rest in like Dr. Mitchell, the creator of this wonderful rest cure, was a very big component of not liking first wave feminism. So part of the treatment was this moral re-education where women were taught to control their emotions because too strong of emotions was apparently bad for your health and was contributing to their mental disorders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Um, so they were taught to resist the urge to cry and resist the urge to become overly excited, which is like 50% of my emotions. So this seems <laughs> yeah. rude to like completely suppress how a woman expresses herself. <laughs> On a daily basis, the number of times I cry and or feel aggressively excited, it's most of my emotions. It's most of my emotions. That's so upsetting. Yeah. They were also told to control their maternal impulses to take care of others. What? Like they're supposed to be at home taking care of the family. So what is the point of that? But confused. Why? I thought they were supposed to. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So don't know. Doesn't make any sense. But okay. they were saying like the urge to want to care for others so much is like straining on you, which like oh. very true in a way. And I think they more specifically mean like don't go out of your way to care for your like great aunt or something, like someone oh. who's not like your nuclear family, because oh, okay. that's too much energy. Which I also don't know like why, because I'm probably I don't know, but that was something they want. It's probably just more suppressing femininity by suppressing your maternal side if that's how you contribute or if that's how you think about your femininity but okay yeah and then they were also advised to avoid sharing their feelings with other people and just keeping it all to themselves oh that's healthy we know that's healthy from life experience yeah so basically they were told to be as bland as humanly possible (laughs) like that was the best way for them to re-enter society once a woman has rested, once she has gained weight and she's relearned how to think and emote, she was then officially considered cured. These are the things that have to happen to be cured. One, okay, okay. I was wondering about that. Your period would have to restart if it had stopped previously, which like I can kind of see that. Okay, that's good. If you're anemic, like, that makes sense. So now you've gained enough weight. If you're like weight. so anxious and like stressed that your period isn't normal, which is definitely and if you're malnourished, that makes sense. Like yeah. maybe, yeah. Which makes sense. Also, though, um, if you got married, then you were cured. And if you got pregnant, then you were cured. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because these were signs of your reproductive system being happy again. So therefore, you were oh. ha- you were healthy and happy. So I my question is. And maybe I should know this, but did most women who had hysteria were most of them not already wives and mothers? They were not. A lot okay. of times, oh, like okay. they'd be like, "Oh, they're crazy because they don't have a husband," or like they're crazy mm. because like they're not having regular sex with their husband. It was a thing too. Like you'd be oh. prescribed like sleeping with your husband or getting married to cure hysteria but yeah isn't that wild it kind of reminds me of the idea of like when you talk or when you see in movies of people talking about women and they're like oh how so-and-so doing and they're like she's doing great now she's married she has kids right, compared to right. like when they talk about the woman who's like not married and they're like oh i mean like she's still alone like attributing her happiness and her health to like what her marital relationship is right and like a heterosexual relationship as well yeah. like, oh he left her mm-hmm. of course there's nothing beyond that yep so i thought that's like what i thought of when that was the cure because i was like that is totally a way that people talk about if a woman's happy or unhealthy or not yeah okay so i'm bring that up but honestly people thought this cure was all the all the shiz like they thought that it was great 
because many patients actually came out like feeling better. Like there was one woman who was having all these issues. Like she was having like multiple spontaneous abortions. So like she was losing babies in the womb basically. And she was like very anemic. And like at one point she had like all these pelvic pain issues and spine issues. She couldn't even like stand. And then she did the rescue and she came out like completely fine. Like she traveled Europe afterwards. Like she was all like go lucky, happy. So um, people really liked it. Not everyone, not Charlotte who wrote the yellow wallpaper. She did not no, like it. She, she went crazy. Not. But a lot of patients did like it, which is interesting. And people have tried to study it, like going back and looking at it, trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah. It's hard to study because there's like literally no patient records and no patient data on it. Like right. there's no way for them to actually study it other than just like word of mouth things. There's no like medical records. Yeah. So there's just a lot of theories that are thrown around, which honestly, none of them really seem to be sticking. Like there's some things that are just kind of like, oh, maybe resting helped like depress whatever they were feeling, whatever was going on. And then like, maybe it came back like later on and no one really knows. It's a big question, big giant question mark. Something that's really interesting is that this method was actually adopted in England, which was different for the time because Usually it was like stuff from Europe coming to the U.S., not stuff from the U.S. going to Europe at the time. So the fact that Britain, like England, adopted it was special, different. And even more interesting is that gynecologists took over this method. Not psychiatrists, not Dr. Mitchell, who was a a neurologist. Dr. Mitchell was a neurologist? Yeah. Good yeah. Grief. So why do you think a gynecologist would take over this method? Well, because they thought it had to do with women's like reproductive organs and parts. Yeah. That's- yeah. Because basically what guess. they were doing in England at the time is that they were carrying out radical procedures to cure mental disorders, such as oh. removing the uterus. What? Hysterectomies to cure depression. Or removing ovaries or cutting tubes. All the things to cure mental disorders. Yeah. Wait, I'm confused because I thought like women are valued for their ability to have children. So if you did all these things, how is that beneficial? I don't know. I don't think people knew either. What they thought, what they were doing. That doesn't make sense, but it makes sense that it doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So actually the rest care, like coming to an OB, like a gynecologist's office was actually a positive thing for women's health, like in a way, because they stopped doing hysterectomies and like all these really extreme procedures that were just super unnecessary and like honestly dangerous to do surgeries you don't need to do um, and submitting women to the rest care, which wasn't a great solution either, but like the alternative was so extreme that this was like a step forward. So mm. just an interesting take on it. Weird, but interesting. Yeah. But on the other end, back to Dr. Mitchell, he actually would sometimes prescribe women with the rest cure as punishment for pretending oh. to be sick. Because some women in the Victorian era were just so exhausted from their work and from, you know, just everything that they would supposedly pretend to be ill so that just for like once in their life, they could experience someone else taking care of them and just like take a break, honestly. So they would pretend to be ill. And then their husbands would call in Dr. Mitchell 
And Dr. Mitchell will be like, mm, do I have the solution for you? So Dr. Mitchell is not a big fan of women faking it. Um, so he would use the rest cure as a threat to determine if women were sick. Whoa. And it's not like this to me. I'm like, this is fishy. Like, so to look even further in Dr. Mitchell's ideas of applying treatment as punishment. So he actually, before he worked on all these women and saw female patients, he did a lot of war medicine. He worked with soldiers and worked with veterans and he would do a similar thing to soldiers who claimed to be injured, who didn't want to go into battle anymore. So men who were like, oh, I can't, I'm hurt. You know, I'm, I don't want to. So he would, in this situation, he would shock with electrical shock because apparently he loves those electrical shocking. This man is trigger crazy with the electrical shock. Yeah. He would shock the injured limb of the soldier to determine how much pain he was actually in and if he was lying or not. Whoa. So he was already doing this to soldiers and then he's doing it to women. And in both situations, Dr. Mitchell knows that the patient is uncomfortable. That's literally how he's determining if they're sick or not is by proposing yeah. this treatment that they're like, that, nope, don't want to do that. He knows that this rescue is not good for the woman. Like he knows that women don't want to do it. Yeah. You know, like he's literally using it to threaten women. So, but yet he prescribes it as a, as a cure to his patients but also uses it to threaten his patients. So like, what? So it's a fun tidbit to the story. That is interesting. That is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But what really blows my mind is um, after all this, after all we've talked about, what really just icing on top of the cake is how they treated men who presented with the exact same symptoms. So men who came in with neurasthenia, anxiety, depression, you name it with mental disorders. Like, uh, can you guess what they were prescribed? I'll give you a hint. It's not the rest cure. No, it was probably relax in like a way that people who are overworked actually need to relax, like get to eat like good food and like take time off and have people take care of them. Yeah. So probably drink alcohol. Yep. Um, so basically what happened is women were prescribed, you know, be a zombie. And men were told to go out west, camp, herd horses, mm, get in touch to with your vacation. Yep, go and go get in touch with your like spiritual manly side. The more work you do, the more physical endeavors you go under, the better you will be to re-enter a society as an intellectual. Like make your mind really work and think and bond with males, you know. Take a vacation. Be a weekend warrior. Basically, (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to be a weekend warrior, but not like this. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they literally were prescribed like I'm not kidding, like truly go out west and be a cowboy. And then those men came back so much happier, like surprisingly, you know, they came back and they were like, who would have thought that vacation did that to you? And this method was actually so popular, like the idea that men would go out west that it became a thing in pop culture and media. You know, there's so many Western movies and it actually made me think of HBO's Westworld. I don't know if you've ever seen Westworld. I haven't actually seen Westworld. It's literally like this imaginary place you can go to. Everyone's robots in it. It's really messed up, but it's placed in the West, like the wild West and really rich people pay to go there. 
and they can kind of like unwind. They can do literally whatever they want. And then that way they like go back to their regular life and just like feel like they got all their anger out or their sadness out or like, Oh, that's interesting. Whatever is this. And that's so funny because it's like, I was like, this is Westworld. Like their prescription is to go out West and be a cowboy. So, um, yeah. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? So this is quite literally, this whole story is an example of the medical system abusing their power to put women in their place Mm because they would use therapy to force women to submit, to become powerless and to relearn what the male's ideal woman is and then gain this like body that the doctor thought was important, which it might've been, but also might not have been. Right. But it was important for childbearing. Yeah, exactly. Like it had like other motives and you know it. Right. Um, and then on the other hand, the male was encouraged to be freeing and touch with themselves, further their mind while women were completely out of control and they had to give all of their autonomy to the doctor, which is so wrong. Like that is, yeah. that's the first thing I mentioned. And I still think it's like one of the most horrible things because medicine today is quite literally trying to do the opposite. Us as students are taught that the patient physician relationship is a partnership at a power dynamic. Right. Doctors are supposed to counsel their patients and make decisions together, not for them. Yeah. So luckily, all in all, the rest cure didn't last super long because in the early 1900s, Freud's psychotherapy and talking cure became all the rage. Wow. All the Who rage. Who would have thought that Freud and his little men <laughs> would have really pushed forward feminism? Yep. So you can learn about. You can learn all about Freud's little men, his theories on women back in episode three, if you would like. But I think we are ready to hop into discussing the rest cure. Yeah. Don't you? I am ready. All right, so we are back. We are no longer receiving the rest cure. We can finally Thank move God. our limbs. We can roll to our side. We don't have to drink <laughs> milk all day anymore. <laughs> I'm going to lay on my side. <laughs> I'm going to lay on my side all night. You can lay on your stomach. You can do whatever you want. You you have your autonomy back. Great. What what are your thoughts, Alicia? So, so the first thought I had was actually about the electric shock thing. Uh-huh. Um, because... I was actually reminded of one of our friends in college when he like hurt his ACL and he had to wear that thing, that brace. And then he, to keep his much muscles from atrophying, he like did receive like small little electric shocks to the muscle to like stimulate oh, them. Yeah. 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 I doubt but. in this context, it was small, non-painful electric shocks. The other thing I was thinking about that I thought was interesting was the fact that Dr. Mitchell was using procedures that he did on soldiers and applied them to women. Mm-hmm. I, I Something's really wrong with that man. I, I don't know what it is, but I'm never going to find out because we can't pick his brain. But clearly yeah. he had no love for women. So I yeah, wonder- even like why. He literally, like, his background before working with women while he was working with soldiers was in, like, lim- like limbs being lost and, like, phantom limb. 
in like the neurology behind phantom limb, which is still like a, it's a very interesting question for sure. But like, how do you apply your theories and your work on that to women who have mental disorders? Yeah, I'm confused. I'm very confused (laughs) by him as a concept. I don't know. I have doubts about his intentions with women and the way he has treated women clearly indicates that he doesn't care. But there's that. And then the last thing that I thought was kind of interesting was the idea that you brought up of the doctor-patient relationship and how it's now a partnership. And I think something that I was thinking about is that that's kind of a recent approach. I don't know how Mm -hmm. recent, but I do know that that's something that at least like in my classes and such, like now we have to explicitly be like, we want to partner with you. Um, Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting, but I don't think that that's always been like that. I think it's been more recent that, okay, you know, you want to establish a good rapport and good relationship with your patient, but I don't know if it's been this like explicit thing. Yeah, I don't know either, but it should be. All right, so time and time again, we see how female patients' entire health is attributed to their uterus and to their reproductive health, which is very interesting because today, many women use their OB-GYN as their primary care provider. So my question is, do you think this idea of reproductive health encompassing all of or part of a woman's health is still very relevant in practice today? Or in even just like public idea, like why would you go to your OB before you'd go to your... I think women's health, when we think about it, there's an association to, you know women's hormones, like female hormones or organs. But I do think broadly, Mm -hmm. there's more social aspects at play that lead women to go to their OB-GYN over their PCP because there's things specific to those organs that need to be examined, checked, and like your PCP doesn't always do them. But your OB can do the things that your PCP does. And so I think it's more of a catch-all in that way. And that's what leads women to go to their OB-GYN more often, more regularly, and then have the OB-GYN follow up with them about other aspects of their health. So I do think it's like they're intertwined and it is interesting. And like connotation-wise, I think there's definitely still a very strong association between women's health and like your uterus, your period, pregnancy, organs, like things like that. But I don't know if it's necessarily like Mm -hmm. the only tie anymore. And I think there's a lot of other factors at play and a trust thing too. Like you, a lot of women like really trust their OB-GYNs, which not that they don't trust their PCPs, but because it's so sensitive, a lot of the things that you go to your OB-GYN for are, yeah, like, and it's so personal very carefully i agree and i think like a lot of symptoms you can attribute very easily to maybe being reproductive like you can mistake like ibs symptoms for maybe having like a, yeah whatever like going on with your uterus or your ovaries because like the same area of your body that you're feeling really uncomfortable in and like you can just mistake your symptoms for something else and like you're not going to go to your internist if you're worried about your reproductive tract because you have a specific doctor for that compared to like a male 
probably go to their internist first because it's like their first primary care doctor they could go to and women have like two choices. Okay. So the last one is, um, so patients who face chronic illness and especially chronic fatigue today are often just told like, go home, rest, like you'll be okay. Just go home and rest as treatment for their condition. Um, as if their symptoms aren't real or if they're just like overworked and just anything. So how does this concept relate to the rest cure? And should we like be rethinking how we tell our patients to go home and rest? Because I do know that some things say um, a sore throat, like a sore throat in a kid, if it's like on, on the scale high diagnosis yeah. on a certain number, then you just tell the child to go home and rest. Like that is truly the treatment. So how do we differentiate? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I remember you sent it to me and I was intrigued by this idea because actually we're doing rheumatology right now. And so a lot of the way that rheumatology or like a lot of autoimmune diseases present with a chief concern of fatigue, like people come in with just like, I feel tired. I feel more tired than usual. And I think Mm -hmm. approaching fatigue is a really, really difficult chief concern to parse through because it's so broad, like so many, anything can make you tired. Any kind of sickness Mm -hmm. is going to take a toll on your body. And how are you supposed to reconcile that as a physician? And so I think what physicians do rely on is other symptoms, of course, of course, it's like so important. Because depression can present as fatigue. Mm-hmm. And so you have to screen for depression in patients who come in with new fatigue that they didn't mm-hmm. have before. Or, you know, a lot of different diseases present as fatigue as well, like heart failure. You're super tired all the time. I mean, your heart's not working. So I think something that we learned in rheumatology is like fatigue plus insert another symptom. So it's like, oh, I have fatigue plus this weird rash. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's like a new thing. So that kind of leads you towards like, okay, maybe this is Mm -hmm. autoimmune. But my thing that I was thinking about for you or the question that you asked was what if it doesn't hit a threshold for us to make a decision about other things? Or what if we rule out like everything Mm -hmm. we can't figure it out and the person's just tired and we have no idea what is going on? We can't just be like, go home and rest. But I guess that is what we say to some Mm -hmm. patients. So I would say that there's a better way to approach that, something that's more tangible. But I would worry that we meet a patient like that and just cast them aside to like go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, which we do far too often, right? We think, oh, we can't find a anatomically medical cause so it must be Mm -hmm. in their minds which psychological issues do manifest medically for sure that's real but we also can't if just because we can't quote-unquote figure it out doesn't mean we should be like oh it's all in your mind yeah for sure and I think especially like talking about rheumatology and like autoimmune things like Women get autoimmune diseases so much, so more, much more than men. It's literally like 90% like, of people with lupus are women. It's insane. Yeah, it's like a ridiculous amount. And it's so, such an understudied field still. Yeah. Like, and so many women go undiagnosed for so long with autoimmune diseases because it could it presents us so many different right. things. I just can't figure out what the heck's going on or like, it's or it's really rare. They don't know what disease they have. And like, 
yeah, a lot of women are just kind of put off as like being crazy and that they're like just making symptoms up and just got to go home and take a second and rest and they're overworked and they are, they got too much going on to go home. And it's, it's, it's a weird dynamic because I even know like people who say like, Oh, doctors don't know anything. I go in and they just tell me to go home. And like, that might be true for some doctors, but also sometimes you do just need to go home and rest because like, maybe you have a viral infection and that's all you can do sometimes is to let your body fight back and you need to go home and like hydrate yeah. and sleep. So it's like weird. And I don't know how to approach it with patients of telling them like, if, if you need to go home and rest, maybe telling a patient, like I've done the evaluation on you. This is what I think is going on. You literally need to go home because when you go home and rest, this is what your body will do compared to like just being like the home and rest. Yeah, I was just going to say the patient education piece of it is so key. And I feel like the best physicians, not that I've seen like a ton, ton of physicians in action, but the few that I've seen who I've, who are phenomenal, they really do a wonderful job of explaining to the patients, to families, to whoever might be wondering like about this patient what mm-hmm. their condition is and why they need to take certain actions. And so, yeah. yeah, like explaining like, this is why hydrating and doing this and this and this is going to be beneficial for you. I wish doctors though could prescribe like vacations. That's like, you need to go to San Diego for at least two and a half weeks. <laughs> that would be so funny. It's like they're pinpointing like specific treatments and the treatments are just like, different national parks or something. Yeah. Your treatment is going yeah. hiking, but yeah, rest cure, rest, <laughs> going home and resting. I, I think it all ties back together to today that women are told to rest and we should be rethinking how we do that. Oh, that was something else that I thought was interesting was that, you know, I mean, maybe at the time this wasn't like that relevant, but it's trans men who have uteruses and like ovaries and such are not Mm -hmm. told to just go rest. But Mm -hmm. like, I think that's an interesting concept too. So it's not literally based off of the organs that you have. It's fully a socialized concept. Everyone does deserve an element of rest and rejuvenation. We all need that, but yeah, has nothing to do with gender. That's a good point. Brings up that we need to talk to all of our patients about resting in the right way. Like you need to rest, but it's not like your treatment to whatever is going on with you. Cause there's more than just societal pressures going on. If you're experiencing like chronic fatigue all the time. Yeah, exactly. Deb Berman, love her. We've talked to her before, talked about her before. And we have like yoga every Sunday that they do for Mm -hmm. us. Like we have like yoga classes we can go to. And she's always like, I urge you to go to yoga, but I don't want you. I don't, I'm not telling that yoga is going to fix your mental health. Like she just doesn't believe in exercise or, you know, group classes or moving your body as, as the cure for your, however you're feeling that day, if it's not great, she's just like, this could be something that maybe will help you like in the right direction. That's kind of my like closing thought is like, you know the idea of rest and rejuvenation is different for everyone. So we want to try to accommodate that as much as we can. And again, like, I don't know if we talked about it a ton, but we mentioned at the beginning that like, this is for white 
affluent wealthy women but like Mm -hmm. women of color were literally enslaved at the time and there was no concept of Mm -hmm. the rest cure for them but honestly they needed to be fed and cared for and needed to rest yeah they needed to rest if you'd like to learn more about all of these things in the future go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite podcasting app is doesn't matter to us just come back every other tuesday we'd be happy with that and also if you have a minute go ahead and leave us a rating and review apple Podcasts is the best place for that if you don't have a minute then text a friend this episode being like learn about the rest cure and maybe we'll gain a new follower from that you never know Yes, absolutely. And while you're telling that friend about listening to the episode, you can tell them to head over to our social media, follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter now at FSTS underscore podcast for our Twitter handle. And then, of course, you can head over to our good old website from scrubs.com to read our show notes, sources, check out our merch. It's a fun time. Yeah. And as our podcast grows, we're interested in doing more collaborations and making bonus content for you all. So if you or someone you know is interested in working with us, just shoot us an email or a DM. Yep. And of course, lastly, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay. See everyone next time.